Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. I am so excited to tell you that InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor are long-term sponsors of this podcast. And here's something I want to tell you about. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. The portfolio manager is Nathan Bell, a talented investor you may have heard on the Rust Network multiple times. The Select Value Fund is designed for investors seeking international diversification and Aussie companies with superior financial metrics. You can invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV dash offer. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV dash offer. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode, Two Cents episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Good to be here as always. Is it though? Because you've had a pretty long (laughs) week, so. (laughs) This is actually the highlight of my week, most weeks. Is it? Yeah. Most weeks, except for this week. (laughs) We have a lot of fun. Yeah, we do. Sometimes too much fun. (laughs) Work that dial yeah, appropriately. Drew was quoted last week in the in a Reuters article about uh, something or other, and um, that must have been your highlight last week because I, can, oh, I yeah. can see yes, increasing rates at the fastest level in history at the same time that both consumers and businesses are facing inflation and dipping their saving into their savings will mean pressure will continue. End quote. That's from Andrew Derrimuth, boots on the ground advisor. <laughs> I do need a pseudonym, don't I? That'd be perfect. It's too similar though. Yeah, that's Someone it. just sent me a photo of a little celebrity claiming that's me. Okay. A little celebrity. A little celebrity. Because I'm Air in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, they said that. Were they looking at the same article I was just looking at? Yeah, someone just texted me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> News spreads quickly on Reuters. <laughs> um, okay, so this week we're going to be answering some questions. We've got some things about the credit ETF. Drew's been in Sydney on a junket. Uh, and then I've been doing- a working not- junket. A junk- working junket, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I've been doing not much really. Uh, to be honest, I, when I put together the show notes for my side of this thing this week, I just look at my calendar in like the weekly view and I'm like, it's just, what, I've got nothing interesting to say. <laughs> um. But yeah, you went mate, fishing again. I went fishing. Yeah, I bought. So I was bragging on the Australian Finance podcast about how I bought squid jigs for a dollar eighty nine each when they're normally like five or ten bucks a pop, and we lose heaps of them. I didn't catch any squid. <laughs> Got a cold. <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's probably the fishermen, to be honest, not the uh, imported squid jigs. Anyway, um, what have you been up to? Uh, as as you said in Sydney, not a junket. Not a junket. Uh, we had a, an event, a conference up there, um, and quite a few meetings with potential and, and existing clients of mm. Waddle Partners while we were in town too. So that's great. Quite a fun few days. Uh, it, it was the Inside Network Growth Symposium, so covered all mm. parts of equity markets and infrastructure, um, and had lucky enough to have Shane Oliver do the intro for us, From which AMP? was super true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. AMP. Uh, super interesting. I put the title as uh, What Just Happened, <laughs> um, which you'd probably call this podcast most weeks. 
but literally, like, the last two weeks, you've seen, like, banks collapse. You've seen central banks step back into uh, the financial markets and provide liquidity, even though they've been withdrawing it for the last 12 yeah. months. Uh, and so many things just happened. And in, uh, Shane just kind of reflected on probably the takeaway was why we're not looking at another GFC. As soon as something like this happens, everyone worries it's another global financial crisis. And what did he say about that? He said it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, He was doing some comparisons and and one of the big messages, if you read deep enough, you read beyond the headlines, like every time you get a push notification, it's incredibly negative, you know, plunging markets, market for 1%. It's like all all these headlines make you think it's much worse than it is. But- Yes, there's clearly issues and interest rates are going to break some things as they increase. Mm. But the two banks that have had the most trouble, three banks have had the most trouble for very specific reasons. One was dealing a lot with crypto uh, depositors mm-hmm. or crypto-related depositors. What go wrong? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Nothing other than crypto's rallying now. So, that's interesting. Back in business. <laughs> <laughs> the Silicon Valley Bank was a perfect example. So, it basically only banked one part of the Amer- America and one type of or one group of companies and investors. So, all these bankers were, all these companies as well as the funds that invest into them were all withdrawing money at the same time because they're not making money yeah. and their deposits fell, their capital supporting their deposits needed to be sold and it wasn't worth as, as much as it was before. Um, and then Credit Suisse was probably the biggest one, probably has far reaching implications, but they were part of uh, the Greensill kind of uh, packaging of bonds, if you think if you remember back four or five years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and they, that's a bank that's been losing money and having trouble for the last five, five to six years. Can you relive that for us, for folks that don't know how it's going? Please <laughs> give me the face. Because Which one, the Credit Suisse? Yeah, Credit Suisse, yeah. Uh, so, essentially, they had the same problem. Um, it wasn't as a specific that they were became insolvent like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, to, to my understanding. Mm-hmm. But they got to the point where they were getting very low on capital and there was a real risk of a bank run happening. So, the Swiss government- announced that they were going to provide, I think it was live when we were on here last yeah, time, yeah, $81 billion. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And if you understand it, like where how the Federal Reserve works, to my knowledge, for this kind of uh, this sort of liquidity is for someone like Silicon Valley Bank, rather than having to sell their US treasuries that are the, that are the cause of their problem, they put those up as collateral to the Federal Reserve and then get cash in return and they're able to fund mm. the deposits using the cash rather than being forced to sell something at a loss and losing capital. Um, and I feel like there was a similar thing happening in Credit Suisse, but the company was undergoing a restructure that needed to happen five or 10 years ago. Uh, and they've the Swiss government effectively ne- made them negotiate with UBS, so another massive Swiss investment bank, to take them over. Mm. Uh, and I think it's guaranteed some of the liabilities yeah. at the same time, just to make sure UBS... Is, I mean, it's the fast and biggest deal in banking mm. probably history for a long period of time and consummated in 48 hours or 72 yeah. hours. I was, yeah, it was over the weekend, right? Yeah. Um, I was watching the live updates on the Bloomberg uh, channel on Twitter and it was like all the policymakers, some of them speaking English, some of them speaking German and all the journalists and people of all walks of life in the room asking questions, some of them like, uh, well, what, what is this going to mean for jobs? Why can't we put money somewhere else and all this sort of stuff? But it has quite, what I realize is it has quite wide ranging consequences because they're two massive global banks, but also on the investment bank and asset management side. So in some countries, they will be owned by the same business, but technically should be competitors. Yeah. So there may be other implications that take quite a while to shake out. And the, the 
the thing that I found really interesting, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, is that, and this was a question that came through on Twitter, I think from Roger, I think it was, just like, how can some of the, I think it was the hybrids go to zero when the equity stays alive? I'm not sure if they reversed that in the end. Oh, really? Uh, there was just some discussion that they reversed it, but it did seem like there was the one thing that the regulator and the negotiation got wrong. Yeah. Um, there's like the example, I had a client ask me exact same question overnight. Um was saying, what does this mean for Australian hybrids? Uh, but all the hybrid, all the terms of pretty much every hybrid is they convert to shares because they provide that equity capital rather than debt capital. If a bank mm. capital level falls below five point one two five percent from memory, from memory, <laughs> from memory, just like <laughs> passes out and then recites this perfectly. <laughs> Sorry, that was just a, that was just a reflex. Uh, not that I've read every single IM of a hybrid ever issued in this Drew country. Sleep. Yeah. Andrew Derrimuth just came out. And he is, the conjuring is what happens when he comes in the studio. Uh, but they convert to equity, and then you lose. If you know, in that case, mm. the equity is going to be near on worthless anyway. Like we saw with Credit Suisse, the share price was down to something like eighty-five percent or ninety yeah. percent. So UBS is buying new shares ninety percent lower than before. They're diluting all the existing shareholders. So shareholders, like any capital structure. Share and equity holders take the most risk and are most likely to be wiped out in the event of insolvency. Mm. Uh, deposit holders are right at the other end. where, And that's why the governments around the world have basically stepped in and said, we'll guarantee all deposits regardless. Not They haven't actually said that. They've said they could if they needed to, uh, regardless of those $250,000 limits. Mm. Um, this interesting is Johnny Shapiro. Good old Johnny Shapiro has got an article in the AFR about this. Um, he said, the decision to bail in the hybrid capital and write the value off to zero, wiped out a large claim on the bank's assets, effectively boosting the combined capital position of the bank. Uh, yeah, so it's a really interesting thing and people are probably rightly questioning the capital structure. So in academic theory, for those of you that uh, have better things to do than go through finance school, uh, basically you have like a waterfall, you have like the 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 bondholders at the top, the most secured bondholders, and then there's gradings and then you go to equity down the bottom. Yeah. Um, or the other way around, and the, the first ones to get wiped out are typically the equity uh, holders, so the shareholders. Uh, it's really interesting. So, do you think, like, I'm going to ask you to stare into a crystal ball here. Do you think that- Rates have peaked? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to- I'm going to put a bit ahead on that one. That's fine. Um, do, well, actually, the Federal Reserve raised rates. Yesterday. Just. Just. That was already baked in. Zero point two five. What are the bond yield do though? Like there's one thing yeah. of what what's happening what with rates and what rates? is the actual bond yield doing, which is more important. Yeah. We've actually just launched the Australian property podcast. Shout out to Pete Wardrink, Chris Bates, and Amy Lenardi for the help over there. Australian property podcast available in your podcast player. And uh, Pete's like a big bond guy and property guy. And he was pointing to the three year yield on Aussie bonds, which is uh it was in that three percent odd range. I uh, just got the five year bond in front of me here, the yield is 3%. So a five-year yield on a government bond, what does that mean? Well, it means that the forward rates are looking down. Exactly. It means they're worried about recession or they're expecting interest rates to be cut Yeah. at oh. some point. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave me the face. <laughs> the Fed came when the Fed raised by 25 basis points overnight. They basically said, we might do one more and that's it. Yeah. And I was getting a bit concerned a few weeks ago <laughs> that it was looking unlikely, but this yeah. kind of extracting liquidity is incredibly painful everywhere. I was We spoke to, you know, pulling liquidity out of banks, pulling liquidity out of everywhere, and we talked about the savings rate yeah. a few weeks ago too. 
What do you think the impact of a lower savings rate is going to be when all the banks are saying how much they have in extra deposits or you know they're ahead of the, people are ahead of their repayments? Well, if their savings rate's falling and they're still spending and retail sales are holding up, they're their savings be, are going down. The banks are going to be skating on thin ice. I mean, it was a pretty interesting... I was listening to one of our other favorite podcasts this morning, but it was also a message that came up uh, during the conference. So a guy called Andrew Swan. I'm not sure if you've interviewed him yet. No. He ran the BlackRock Dragon Fund. So Asian equities uh, for like 20 years. If you're going to name a fund, name it Dragon, Dragon. Fund. <laughs> the other one was Tiger, but apparently Tiger was Bonds. Not, um, oh. I could be completely Sounds the like the Tiger around. Cubs yeah. situation. Anyway, yeah, Dragon, go on. Uh, he was talking about what's happening in China. So on this podcast, they actually were talking about animal spirits, as you know, oh, yeah, on the plane classic. on the way down. I came down from Sydney today. Um, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got on my flight. That's all that matters. Um, he was talking about uh, the fact that they've just seen the biggest run and transfer of money out of bank accounts into money market funds in the US hmm. compared, uh, like even the reverse of what happened in the GFC where everyone got out of money market funds. Yeah. This is actually people flooding into money market. Because they think that's safer than the bank right now. Apparently. So, you're buying CD, like certificates of deposit or short-term- treasuries yeah. as an alternative to cash and it, m- money is flooding in there. Um, and that's and impacting yeah. the banks because they're getting all their liquidity pulled out. Yeah. So, it's happening everywhere and this is all driven by higher interest rates and, and what's happening in different parts of the world. But the segue was into China where the opposite is happening. So, there's this view that you know China is going to be this high growth, they're mm-hmm. over leveraged or more importantly, they've got all this pent up savings that they're going to spend aggressively because they're saving their cash balances in on the on the Lockdowns. personal part of the economy have gone up. Yep. But it's actually the opposite. Mm. So redemptions from money market funds, this was from MAN GLG, yep. that, that that group. Um, the redemptions from money market funds have actually all gone into cash. So it's not actually cash that people want to spend. It's they don't want to hold it in money market funds and property debt and development uh, because the government essentially told them not to. Mm. So it's investment funds being held in cash, not the pent up expectations that people have that we have from what happened in Australia and the US. So, what are the implications of that then? That that, uh, you don't think the inflation that hit the rest of the world last year will hit China as hard, which should be better for kind of more sustainable growth and not that kind of blowout GDP growth this year. Jeez, you really just layering it on with this um, this call. He's 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 given us like four different ways that (laughs) interest rates are going lower. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Asia entering... uh, loosening cycle of interest rates mm. the rest of the world in the middle of a hiking cycle mm, well credit to yeah. you sir <laughs> <laughs> well uh, in other news um, not much is happening so <laughs> no so it was your note I had like 15 lines of notes what's this one. thing you got here in the notes you got our philosophy on two pages project for the weekend what does that mean yeah, everyone knows I needed extra two days a week but um, mm. on top of the weekend yeah absolutely because I don't do any work during the week probably <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I spoke to one of our, I think the, one of the clients you met a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's like, I'd really like a philosophical document on two pages that outlines your approach to investing. Planners. Yeah. That's cool. I Which like is that. a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, and we've got our messaging and we know what, what we do, but putting it into two pages. Yeah. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> well, that 
That's great. So yeah. maybe you can share that with the world once you're done with it then. It's gonna, if you do that, I'm going to have to put a deadline on it and actually <laughs> yeah. deliver it. That says this weekend. So yeah. Monday morning, 9 yeah. a.m., mate. See it in the office. Uh, so that would be good. I think that's a good way to – I think most people should do this. Most people should write down their investment philosophy or strategy or whatever, just something. Definitely. So people can see – and you can reflect on it as well because I rem- we've done this for years at Rask and um, – I still go back on the older versions and cringe a little bit like, oh, did I really think that? Um, but now it's kind of this evolving thing where I get a bit more, uh, I guess, structure from having that and making decisions through time, um, which really guide me. So I've just, for me, I've just been still just thinking a lot about this whole private market stuff. One of our most popular episodes of the past year was publicly private. And um, it's been a real interesting thing for me i think we interviewed sebastian evans from naos we had um a lot of investors come on and talk about private v public i've been doing that for a bit of the business podcast that we run because a lot of business owners are in that market where i think there's over i think it's over 10 million there are twelve thousand businesses with over uh 10 million revenue in australia Twelve thousand, so massive yeah yeah five times the size of the asx over two million dollars in revenue there's fifty thousand. yeah so you're in there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know about that. <laughs> Two hundred million. <laughs> so, no, but seriously, like there are a lot of businesses in Australia that could have equity or want equity or want to raise capital. And these are the poignier ends of the investment markets. And that's where you tend to if you know what you're doing, you know your way around, it might be really interesting. So I've just been spending a bit of time on that. And I made this bold prediction in twenty twenty one of where my money I think would be invested over a long period of time. And by that I mean like in 20 years, what do I expect my portfolio to look like? And at the time I thought maybe 20 to 30% would be stocks like on the stock market. Um, and then in, and then around 30% was ETFs. Farm, no. Farm's not included. This is a pure investment. That's a lifestyle asset for show. Um, unless it like, I don't know, I think it's my Highland cattle cheap and then breed them and then sell them. They're pretty expensive. Anyway, so then I thought private companies would make up about 20% of my portfolio and the rest would be like bonds and alternative funds and whatever. But um, I think I underweighted uh, how much I would want to be invested in private companies yeah. and also ETFs. Like, I just, I, I, and this is what I mean by philosophy evolving over time. That's only two years ago. And I'm starting to think more, there'd be more private companies and more ETFs in my portfolio longer term. I, I just think, yeah, I just I have this view. It's not what I recommend for everyone by no means. I don't think most people should invest that way, but it's what I'm thinking about. Well, I think it's a trend that's occurring throughout the financial yeah. system or in we saw it for the massive moment. funds, right? Yeah, I mean, and future fund has like twenty five percent in private markets, if not more. Yeah, and now that's, that's filtering down. Now SMSFs want to do it. SMSF do. There's more and more options. Yeah, um, we had. Uh, I heard a presentation from Premium, so one of the platforms, oh, yeah. and they showed trends of where yeah, asset yeah. allocation is going. And alternatives, so this would fall into alternatives, had gone from like 5% five years ago to like 15% just in five years. Yeah. Um, we and even, find it super interesting. And NetWealth have this thing, this is not pitch for NetWealth or Premium, but NetWealth have this thing where you can do off-market assets yeah. and, and just track that. And I think that's the platforms telling you like this is the frontier for a lot of investors. And yeah, I think there's fewer reasons. And I think what's happened in property markets over the past 15 years is you've got so much more transparency with realestate.com, all these data providers and whatever around the peripheries. And then that, that 
10 years before that, it was equity markets where you'd have like the emergence of Comsec, E-Trade, interactive brokers and stuff like that. And now we could probably see this with private markets where a lot of companies are trying to solve for private markets, yeah. uh, whether it's equity, credit, whatever. I think we're going to get a lot more visibility through a lot of tools, exchanges and the like. So I've been spending a lot of time there. And the basic idea is you probably want to start thinking about these things before every man and his dog's in there trying to figure out um, what's good and what's not. And the story is simple. Like, because company, there's more companies that are private and there's more companies staying private for longer. Like exactly. Canva is the perfect example. It means the runway of their growth, most of it actually happens before they ever get to listed market. Yeah, um, and exactly. Something, yeah, something we look at a lot. It's one of the things that I, I mean, there's many things that I worry about with index funds and uh, index investing, but that's actually one of the things that I'm really aware of over the next 10 to 20 years is if none of them ever make the exchange, well, the index funds are never going to go there because yeah. they have to have liquidity. That's why asset allocation, yeah. you know, having a strategic asset allocation at the top, which you're kind of talking about in your prediction, yeah. is so valuable for portfolios and for returns because you can say, hmm. I can handle 30% in liquidity yeah. or I should have this amount in private markets. Well, didn't when we, ha- when we spoke to Will Hamilton, he talked about this a bit, didn't he? He said that something along the lines of like he split some of the asset allocations in half yeah. and has half completely un- un- like illiquid and then half is liquid. Yeah. So that if you do need a drawdown, you draw down the parts that are liquid first. Exactly. That makes sense. It gives you a buffer, a bit of a lead time. The only challenge you have with private markets at the moment is valuations. Yeah. You know, you're buying into a book of companies that are already valued and are they valued appropriately or are you buying into a fund that's going to buy companies in the next few years? You probably prefer the latter yeah. that's deploying into a difficult market rather yeah. than one where you, you don't you, you can't value those companies yourself so you just have to trust that they're appropriately valued right now mm. which is difficult because mm. equity markets have fallen 20 to 30% but private markets have fallen maybe five. Yeah, it's not. And you also want the, for that extra risk you take in the, with the illiquidity and the, let's be honest, reporting and all of the other stuff that comes with private companies, it is a bit of a minefield. You do want the IRR, like you want the expected to re- return to be much higher exactly. to compensate for that risk. And you just have to weigh it up on a case-by-case basis. If you want 10% from public markets, well, you probably want 25% from private markets. Yeah. Because you've just got the, the, the odds of failure uh, against you, relatively speaking. Okay, cool. Well, that's a bit of fun. We've talked for 20 minutes, talked some uh, gibberish. Let's uh, jump into some questions. And as always, if we do answer your question, all of the uh, information that we deliver is strictly general in nature because we simply don't know your circumstances. So if you do give us any information, we'll try and disregard that. Uh, in our response and keep it generalized for the rest of the audience as well. Uh, And you can get in contact with us by clicking the big button or link that says ask a question. It's in your podcast player in front of you on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. It is also available on any of the RASC websites. Uh, If you do not know what your needs, goals, or financial objectives are, you should consult a licensed and trusted professional, uh, say someone like Drew here, uh, who can help you by taking into account all of those things as well as oftentimes your tax. So every week, the person with the best name gets a prize. This week, it's the uh, Value Investor Program. It's a $499 course that I designed, and you get that for free if we select your name as the most creative. So, speaking of, a good one to start the day, Credit Less Swiss Army Knife <laughs> says, I read six months ago rumblings about Deutsche Bank. How much strife do we think they're in? We kind of answered this, Drew, but what do you think? Everyone's in strife. <laughs> Everyone. We just kind of just talked about this, about the risk and the ebb and flow of the balancing act that banks play. 
Yeah, I think I don't know enough about Deutsche, but I, I'm pretty sure they do a lot more asset management, investment management, don't they? Yeah, I, I should have done a bit more prep for this one, yeah. but Deutsche's been in trouble for quite a few years. Yeah, like, similar to Credit Suisse. Yeah, it's very much the same as Credit Suisse. If it was a brother, it would be, yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and so the reality is, I, I feel like we don't know. No, we're, we're not in an informed enough position. I think we can talk generally. Yeah. Which would be that you've seen what the reaction of central banks and governments is going to be when yeah. systemically important institutions are in trouble. Yep. They'll find a way. It's not a bailout as the likes we saw in the GFC, uh, but they'll find a way to make sure consumers and deposit holders aren't impacted heavily and it doesn't have a lasting impact on the economy. Yeah. I think that's an important point that you brought up before about liquidity. A lot of people thought when Credit Suisse was being saved that the bank was just giving them money. No. It's not the way it works. They're actually just saying- if you need to draw on this, you can draw on this until your other things come through. Yeah, it's not like saying here's money and go away with it. Yeah, it's not what happens. So, um, and there's an mm, infinite supply of money. There is an infinite, depending on your another uh, another political <laughs> the Politburo economic bureau. It's like what <laughs> depends is, on your view of MMT and you, modern monetary theory. But if you, if you have to create more money that goes to a bank that funds deposit holders taking money out of there. Yeah. Bank, is that creating more money? Well, oh, opening a can of worms here on the Australian <laughs> Investors Podcast. We want to get through some questions. Um, so but the answer would be yes. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not. So, no, how is money made? Just holding into question. question. Yeah. No, money printing creates inflation. Well, no, it does not for a while. <laughs> yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Um, but, giving people money that while well, they're in lockdown- yeah. That they could only spend on goods and not services created inflation. While there was a logistics <laughs> lockdown. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, let's so, not go back. Uh, okay. So- Well-trodden ground. I would just say there was a lot of talk about Deutsche uh, when uh, credit spreads blew out a bit. And basically, what that means is that if the funding costs got a bit stretched. Uh, that was going back a year or two. I haven't really followed the story since then. But what I can say, generally speaking, about these big news events are the best ones are the ones that no one can predict, the, where the fear is- so un, like it's so ungodly, like how big of a like impact this could be. While at the same time, no one can predict it. Yeah, like that, they're always in the headlines. Like you know, the best one from a headline perspective is uh, geopolitical risk, China v USA. You know these types of things. They're scary headlines, and um, you just got to try and walk through them and try and remove the emotion. I think there's another question about emotion. But I guess one of the notes that I had here is that markets are complex adaptive systems. And that's the thing that uh, is probably best describes how markets evolve. So if there is a risk that presents in one part of the market, the market and the investors tend to adapt to that pretty quickly. And it's not always perfect, but it is often priced in. Yeah. Uh, and then the complex part is that there are millions of different actors in the market, outside of the market at any one time. So, someone that tries to tell you that they have an answer to a really complicated thing like this in a headline or in a news article or online is kidding just you and them. It's like that every night. I mean, I write a daily, so it probably don't help. But every <laughs> day, to the noise. it makes it sound like there's a simple relationship between what happened and why the market moved. Yeah. But it's not that simple. It's like uh, Fed Power, Power said this. Market went down. Yeah. It's, and it's never and as And then the simple. next headline writer says, Powell said this, this market went, went up. up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there, there is actually, it's so much art and science. We, I think I mentioned, I spoke to Shane Oliver about it, yeah. um, that everyone thinks it's a, finance is a science, but it's not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's both at the upper echelon of finance and also at your own purse strings. Um, it all comes down to how you behave. Uh, yeah, there was- uh, 
there, I mean, there are some things around this, like the, the contagion effect, and that's pretty scary. Um, but one of Drew's points before was basically like, if there is a systemically important bank, a bank that is so important to the economy, the government has a role to play in protecting consumers. Financial stability. Yeah. So they're going to protect consumers, even if that means you as an investor get wiped out, they're going to protect consumers because yeah, it's just yeah. too important. Equity holders will lose money. Yeah. As they should. That's yeah. part of the risk. That's the risk you take by investing in shares. Um, that so- was compared to, if you think about what happened during the GFC, how long it took for any action. And that thing dragged out for like 18 months before it hit the bottom of the market. Yeah. A 40% fall from top to bottom. Yeah. I don't uh, want that. No. And this was Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank started on Friday. By Monday, it was solved. Yeah. I like this next question. I've got to laugh. I smile on my face. Uh, comes from investing with Annette. <laughs> But then they put it in brackets just in case I didn't get it, which is investing with a net dot, dot, dot. It can be a little bit slow. (laughs) Hi, folks. Thanks for your podcasts. I find them informative and entertaining. Well, we want to be entertaining. Uh, We are regularly reminded that investing involves risks and in the rare cases, an investment can go to zero. We're just talking about Deutsche Bank. Uh, What situations exist where the outcome could be even worse than this and go below zero? In other words, lose all the money invested and more. In particular, do certain brokerage platforms available in Oz offer higher risk choices? And what are these choices? Or flipping things, are particular platforms safer by limiting choices? Oh, then he goes, I'm sorry. Uh, in a recent podcast, Owen made passing reference to CMC and <laughs> not being a fan of one of their offerings. Was Derivatives, the I think. Was it the AFP? The Australian yeah. Finance Podcast. Yeah. That was, I just, yeah, I got a bit hot. <laughs> And bothered uh, without really elaborating. I oh, should have heard me elaborate because I would have kept going. Uh, worst case, one hears of situations like Alex Kearns using Robinhood and the issues with options trading. My question is about brokerage platforms, not so much things like margin loans unless offered via that platform. Dot, dot, dot. It's a good question. Um, do you want to go? Or do you want- yeah. I think it's kind of a complicated one too. Because there's like two um, questions in there. There's like, yeah. how do you lose more than zero on brokerage platforms? And there's only one way to lose more than zero and that's if you're shorting something yep. or you're taking on leverage to do it. Yeah. Uh, so you mean you're gambling with money that's not yours. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. options are where you're leveraging your initial investment, and if you're shorting it, the yep. benefit, you know, the reason you go long or you buy a stock is because the upside is infinite. There's no cap on valuation. Yeah. And the ch- the issue of being short is that there's no cap on the downside. Uh, mm. or it goes to zero. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Um. So if you just oh, no, think sorry, any go. time, yeah. no, no, I got that completely wrong. <laughs> so if you're shorting, the stock can go up forever. Yep, and you can lose money forever. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. there we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what Drew is saying is that if a stock keeps going up and you have short shorted the stock, basically what happens is you have to cover the difference at some point. That's yeah. what we call a you know a, a cover, uh, and. What ends up happening is your stock can keep going up, like a share price can go up to infinity. We saw that with GameStop during COVID, uh, where the probably rightly there were short sellers saying this thing's not a very good business; it's probably going to fall. And then all the people on Reddit got together and pushed the stock price up, and then it exploded all the hedge funds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that happens thirty five percent overnight too. Yeah, and that happens. Um, so anytime you basically use money or derivatives, so they provide this synthetic uh, leverage that is not yours, you can lose more than you put in. Uh, one of the great things I like to say about shares, Drew, is that you can only really lose 100% if you're just buying normal shares, but you can make a lot more than 100%. Yep. Short selling, as you said, is the opposite of that. The reason that I went on a rant about, uh, in this instance, <laughs> CMC markets, um, is that 
they offer CFDs. And they so they offer a big part of their platform is like low-cost ETF and share trading. But then the other side is they have this CFD. I can't even remember the name of this crazy thing that they put on their website. But I could go on and on and on about how terrible CFDs are, not just for your wealth, but also for families. And we see that financial stress and leads to domestic violence, leads to family breakdowns, leads to so many other things. So anything related to CFDs or contracts for difference is a big fat red cross sign across it from as far as I'm concerned. Um, And so that's why I mentioned that. Now, I'm not the only one asking would love to say these things are gambling, I would think, if I put six words in their mouth. Um, and one of the things that CFD providers have to do is they have to disclose the amount of losses on their platform when they advertise, which is pretty revealing. I just like brokers that give you the HIN number, the chess-sponsored HIN number, uh, so that you can individually own the shares that you have a holding in. And don't incentivize you to trade too much. And don't, yeah, don't like put all the impulses in front of you for trading a lot. because Don't that gamify it. Yeah, because that's what we know is not good for people. So just in summary, good question. Um, investing with Annette. Uh, you can lose more than your money if you use debt or you use some sort of synthetics, uh, which we call like options, contracts, or things like that. A lot of people that will have to pass tests or whatever before their, their brokerage will allow them to trade options. Like I had to do a test with my broker. Uh, otherwise, CFDs are terrible. Margin loans are pretty bad. And there are other ways to use debt responsibly. Um, but yeah, that's my answer to that question. And good one. So, lost trust, question mark. This one's going to be an interesting kind. <laughs> I saw this in the chat. I was like, is it planted? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure I planted this one. <laughs> yeah. Lost trust, space, question mark. Um, <laughs> here's, a qu- here's a question. Our advisor keeps telling us Dubbo will recover. It seems unlikely. I worry that advisors get too close to some funds like Dubba and make clients hold on when they should sell out. We're now stuck hoping they bounce back. True. Dubba. I, I mean, honestly, I think most advisors- The gift. The yeah. gift most advisors wouldn't- uh, Do individual stocks. Recommend Dubba, yeah. Like if you, and it depends what sort of advice you're looking for, you're probably looking more like a broking house because I don't know many uh, financial advisors, holistic financial advisors, you know, stockbrokers are still financial advisors yeah. uh, that look in the small cap part of the market. So it's- Could have been, it was, I think it's got up to about 700 mil market cap. It's now 60 mil. It's still a small below cap. 60 mil. Still a small cap at 700 mil. Yeah, true. Yeah. You know, what's CBA? 160 billion or so. Yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is it's probably not a traditional holistic advisor if they're if they're in double. It's more likely more a, a broking house yeah. where it is likely to be higher risk. Um, and I mean, most rule of these is simple. I've got it wrong a few times, and every time I've got it wrong, I ref- wished I did it the opposite. Was once it fallen, once it's fallen, just sell it. Oh yeah, zip you man. Like, don't yeah. One of <laughs> one of the biggest issues is that anchoring bias, where you think it's going to be worth what it was. And there's so many stories. AMP would be one where it's still stuck around a dollar, and they're still trying to break yeah. the company up. Where these companies, they still seem so valuable, and you remember what they were and how what they were worth, and you get that anchored in your head. But there's what is the catalyst that's ever going to get it back to that point? Um, and as difficult it is, I try and. We, we sell loss-making investments for clients all the time. I think there's a – might have been Morgan Housel's book that I quote all the time. It says even, you know, even if you get 50% wrong, you're still going to compound at a significant 
perfectly good rate Absolutely. Uh, when you're investing. Um, so I've found it just to, being able to sell it, but making sure you're investing into something that you that has the potential to recover, maybe not the same level, but recover and grow more sustainably than that company rather than getting stuck in where that used to be. Yeah. Um, we, we, we Obviously, this question, I lost trust. Uh, could also You could also be referring to an advisor as in like an investment advisor, which is maybe like a general advice framework where like you follow someone- Like a buy. Yeah, like yeah. a buy, hold, sell type thing, Yeah, um, which may be the case. I would just, yeah, make obviously you got to make your own independence that you, that's a uh, call there. Drew, uh, Zip is down 28.7% in six months. Uh, Dubber has never been lower as far as I can tell. It's down 63% in six months. And these are never easy calls to make. Um, the thing is, someone could look at Dubber right now and go, it's got cash or did have cash with the last reporting date. The market cap's $56 million. Maybe there's some sort of salvage value. And the company, to its credit, has made a choice to – it's made people redundant. It's done a whole heap of stuff. But in my opinion, there was a – I think there's another question in here about hope. Better value with more certainty somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere else. And also, better sleep at night. Yeah. Um, I, we don't – we can't tell anyone what to do with their money on this show, but I would just say that, you know, it, the thing that it doesn't it doesn't look pretty. Um, We're in a different world. Yeah. If Cost interest rates stay high, where higher. are they going to get the money from? And then and if you go want to talk about the co- I won't talk about the company actually, but it's a super competitive technology, super competitive sector. So yeah, yeah, it's um it's hard because you give your trust to someone too, um, and we all make mistakes. To be honest, I think the the key lesson from this comment is that hope itself is not always the investment strategy. You kind of need to remove yourself from that. And the second thing that I would try and say is that if you are seeing an advisor just know what kind of advisor you're seeing is it a holistic financial advisor or is it a stock picking advisor very few really high quality advisors are stock picking advisors yeah like they could be good investors and that's maybe what they want to do but they're not the kind of advisor like say drew is here even though drew owns zip and maybe have a few direct stocks in the portfolios of clients but not zip not not zip let's make that very clear but um it's totally different. In fact, we're going to move to something now, which may in have at some time been in the portfolio that you managed, Drew. Um, so, snorkeling can't breathe says, um, can you please do a deep dive or at least a snorkel on PL8 <laughs> EFT? Oh, as in like ETF, ETF but yeah. yeah, it's not an ETF, but that's okay. I am interested to see if it's a good option for retirement, especially if you know you will pay tax when retiring. Uh, yeah. Uh, what it does, so Plato Income Maximizer. Uh, PL8 is a ticker symbol. Yeah, yep. that's got a managed fund too. We've invested in the managed fund at different periods in the past. We don't at the moment. Uh, it's basically a strategy specifically created for tax-free investors focused on high dividend paying companies and extracting franking credits from the ASX. So, if retirees looking to use those franking credits to kind of Boost their income. And that's why it has high turnover. Is this, we talked about this, didn't we? Yeah. So, the- so it does a lot of buying and selling. And I think the Don Hampson, Dr. Don Hampson, uh, is probably oh, one yeah. incredibly Don. smart investor. I think you've interviewed him before. No, no, he's going yeah. to come on the show. I should have. Yeah. I should follow up. Yep. He, um, I think he used to work in one of the big super funds and this was like a 
not a high frequency, but like a quantitative yep. process where they analyze companies, find who had the biggest franking credit balances, look at buybacks when they're allowed to do those, which aren't happening anymore. But it's very focused around what dividends are coming up. You know, when a company goes ex-dividend on the ASX, you'll see that it falls by the amount of the dividend, but not the franking credit. Yep. And that's usually because global investors, it could be State Street's global ETFs that are holding BHP, they got no value in the in Frank the front credit. credit, so there's always that arbitrage, and this is the group on the other side picking up that arbitrage. Yeah, but uh, from the last time I spoke to them, they kind of run two portfolios. One's uh, buy and hold, copy the ASX just about. So something like CSL is in there mm-hmm. at last count, even though CSL doesn't provide much of a dividend. And then the other fifty percent, they turn over that like three times, so they're ah. constantly trading into and out of the market, and that's why it's for re- retirees because mm-hmm. you can see there. Yeah, because if you get the high turnover, you get higher tax. Just yeah, exactly. Yeah. As if you're Unless you're in a tax-free, more, tax-free environment. Yep. More, of your, more of your distributions will be realized capital gains, which if you held them personally, you pay more tax on compared to mm. frank dividends. So, And you can see from there, so the total returns 10.4% over the last 12 months and the income was 8.4%. Yeah. So, it's very focused on 8.4% income. That's, that's, that's high. Yeah. That's very high. I mean, yeah. when to use it, we use it as a kind of a tactical tilt at various times. If we think Australian equities are undervalued or yep. you're looking for a boost in income, we'll use it for that, maybe for one or one or two years, but not as a not as a trade. And we've we've been wary of having it as a long term core, uh, as opposed to an index, mainly because of that the the kind of high turnover, uh, but the fact that it almost becomes bond like that mm. you're not. You're not necessarily finding growth. You're you're just paying out and creating all taking all the dividends rather than investing into growing companies. Mm. Mm, makes sense. Um, yeah. So there are a few other alternatives as well. Um, the in the ETF space, the one that's the um, standout is the uh, Vanguard High Yield Australian Shares ETF. Yep. A bit more diversified, low turnover. So it's more accumulator focused income, whereas this is more retiree focused income. Uh, you said there's a managed fund as well as this is a listed investment company, if I'm not mistaken, not an ETF. I'm pretty sure. Um, they haven't converted it yet. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure PL8 uh, and the ticker symbol, just looking it up. Yeah, it's a Plato Income Maximizer Limited LTD. If you see limited on the end of anything, uh, you know it's a company. Uh, if you see ETF, then you know it's an ETF. Um, so, good question, actually. It's a really good question because we did have a few questions about this last year. Um, and these types of strategies tend to work well. Just as a general rule, not so much for this one, although it is kind of similar, these more frequency traded funds, is uh, in a flat market. So what we call a flat market is when the stock market is not expected to rage higher because there's not a lot of economic growth and interest rates and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that's when people tend to focus on income and that's when these tend to move into the fore. Okay, so Car- Carl I can't, <laughs> spelt I-C-A-H-N. T says, I can't, um, <laughs> says, hi guys, we'd love to get your opinion on publicly traded investment funds that have exposure to private investments, such as the UK investment fund, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, and it's listed on the uh, London Stock Exchange. And I'll fast forward through the question a bit. Um, there's a discount to NAV potentially pricing in further down rounds in private companies because it has private and public companies inside of it. Do you guys believe funds like this offer great opportunities to get exposure to innovative private companies cheaply and potentially at a discount, or are they a trap waiting to happen due to the potential further carnage in the private market? I love this bit too. Understanding anything you say is in no way financial advice. Wonderful. Drew? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) passing me this hand grenade of a question. Um, 
No, no problem. <laughs> uh, well, we kind of covered a lot of it in the intro. Like, I think the it, what essentially what you're talking about is a listed private equity vehicle. Yeah, could be private debt, could be private equity, and that just means that same as a listed investment company, they're taking people's money and investing it into private rather than other public companies. So, like AFIC, but in yeah. A- Kev Tui would be the guy to ask about this, I reckon. Definitely. Yeah. Kev's, Kev's great in the private markets. <laughs> yeah, he loves this sort of stuff. Yeah. He loves the listed uh, funds that are like P1. So, Pengana has its yeah. own private equity trust. Um, and I think there's a, there's a whole heap of other strategies available. Most of them are in fund form, not on the ASX at the moment, like MLC yeah. and Schroders. You've probably seen some of those where they're, they're, they call them evergreen. So, the problem with most private equity- Oh, yeah. Is that you invest and you're stuck for seven years. Yeah. Where these you can invest and occasionally redeem a little bit and, yeah. and sell and go in and out. But that comes with the issue that he's talking about, which is that's a discount to NTA like every every list investment company or most. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, the, 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 this question touches on something called mark to market, uh, which is basically like are the vehicles inside of- So, are the companies inside of the trust- actually worth what is being stated in the company's reports and how do you know um yeah and how do you know and the really the answer is if you're basing an investment decision purely off nav you've got to have confidence in the nav the net asset value the value of the asset assets inside the vehicle i wouldn't make a sing i wouldn't make a decision single-handedly based on whatever the nav is telling me you'd have to research that yourself you want to look at the companies do your own assessment if they've only been written down a little bit we'll just be careful and this is the whole thing with private markets we just need to be careful even though i made a kind of bold bold (laughs) statement about them you just need to be really careful so um that's what i'd say there okay next question comes from ash no cash drew that you'll love this one savings rate on ing cash account is 5% compounded monthly. Am I better off putting my 5K per month in there or VAS ETF? Obviously, we can't give you personal advice. Let's insert that there. Based on the previous 10 years on VAS, what would be my total um, if I put my money in there and reinvest in my distribution? So, Ash, no cash. We actually can't take into account the fact of how much money you've got or the different alternatives because we can't say it's right for you. Now, I'll be quick and then I'll hand it over to Drew. I don't know. I have no idea what if you'd put the money in, what it would be after 10 years from now. Um, Same with ING. I really don't know because interest rates will change. The returns on the ETF will change. And averages. Drew, what do you think? (laughs) Didn't answer the question at all. You're like a politician. I'll answer the question without answering the question. No, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll loop back around and give a m- more substance-rich answer in a second. Well, this is my favourite answer, isn't it? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are you what are you seeking to achieve here? You're, talk, you're comparing two completely different assets. Yeah, one of them is a floating rate. Government guaranteed investment up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Deposit or a cash yeah. account, yeah, something like that. So you're getting five percent, but that five percent could change tomorrow if you believe my predictions. <laughs> or in twelve months' time, so if it's a term deposit twelve months now from now, you might only get four percent, and then you get one percent less. So you can't extrapolate that out for a for another ten years. That's a very difficult thing to do. And then going to VAS is a very is a complete opposite. You're going to a volatile, uncertain. Yeah group of companies you can't predict what it's going to be you can think about what it was in the past but we know that uh i think markets can stay depressed for many years in some cases so it's what are you trying to achieve the the drawback of just being in ing is that you know people will say inflation's at seven you got five so you're negative two uh the positive of being equities is you have the potential to grow that 
and get the four percent yield on the way. Mm. Um, Is that a slightly? It's slightly better. better answer. It's, it's slightly better than mine. I'll give it a three. Um, <laughs> Out of so three. I'll try and get two or three and a half. I would just say that if you've got a 10-year window, this is the general gist of things. 10 years is enough that it's- So this is just- This is- I have to be very careful the I say this, but 10 years is enough that it's riskier not to invest in the share market. Yeah. But the problem is what happens between here and 10 years is behavior gets in the way. And so- the, the ING account looks good for the next 30 days, next 60 days, maybe even the next 90 days or a year. But what happens after that? If the interest rate goes to zero, unless you lock in a term deposit, then you're left with very low yielding thing. But the, the benefit, as Drew was alluding to, from a company in investing in an ETF for the appropriate amount of time with the appropriate risk um, considerations is that you benefit from the companies getting more valuable while also paying dividends. So you get the two-pronged effect of income plus growth, whereas you won't get that in a term deposit or a savings account. So that's what I mean by in the short term, the cash seems less risky, but in the long term, like 10 years, not three years, 10 years, shares almost always seem less risky. But yep. people don't think about that because our, our emotions aren't over 10 years. If they were over 10 years, we'd all be mellow fellows. <laughs> but we're all- Easy breezy. We, yeah, that's it. But we wake up every day stressed about- trying to get the kids to school or whatever. And that's how our emotions operate. Our emotions are anchored to today, but our long-term thinking has to be a bit more rational. Ash, no cash, good question. It's a, but just make sure you're comparing apples to apples. Um, okay, so we've got some a few more questions, which we'll go, we'll go a bit more quickly through, Drew, in the interest of time. And I don't want to make your week any longer. <laughs> it's <laughs> only make, Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I mean, so this Saturday. is a really good question. And this might actually, this questionnaire will probably get my vote this week, Drew. I'm already, yep, I agree. Mr. Dunny Kruger. So I'll leave it to you to look up the Dunn and Kruger effect. Um, but Mr. Dunny Kruger says, Hi, gents. Love the podcast. As a newbie investor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on rebalancing a portfolio. It's also a good question. Since starting on my investing journey, I've seen both my growth and defensive ETFs fall in value. However, they have fallen disproportionately. Rebalancing seems a bit counterintuitive in these circumstances. How white. Might we think about rebalancing a portfolio if the timing results in a capital loss? Thanks, Mr. Dunny Kruger. Uh, I'll go first, because oh. if you want. Oh, no, you, no, go. you take the easy ones. That's fine. No, okay. you go first. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, so, <laughs> age before beauty. <laughs> so, uh, rebalancing a portfolio is kind of like if, not when. And by that, I mean a lot of people wait for like, oh, every six months, every year or something. Like that. It's. Um, if, if things are out of balance, it uh, sounds like this is because they've fallen disproportionately. What we've seen in the last year is kind of not what we expect to see in academic theory where bonds and stocks have both fallen really hard. Yeah. Uh, so normally what you would have is like maybe bonds hold flat while stocks go down or vice versa. Uh, and so we've had two of those things fall at once, which is not a good feeling, which is why we've talked about on the podcast for the last few years about not just having stocks and bonds, which is the traditional portfolio, but also having alternative investments and things that don't fall at the same rate as the other stuff. So for me personally, we've kind of moved away from having the, the bonds as the pure bedrock uh, and in, in times gone by, and now we're looking to reintroduce that into portfolio. Yeah. So as long as you have the right proportions of your defensive and your aggressive, that's really all you can ask for. And then maybe you can make slight tilts around that to rebalance into if you have a view over the next three to five years. 
Yeah, completely agree. I think you need can, one of the. I mean, Kev two would be the perfect one to talk about this. Body well, Kev. yeah, the power of rebalancing, particularly in crises, mm-hmm. and we usually have a. And Kev has rec- recommended this, and have a rec- and a, a range of about five percent outside your strategic asset location ranges. As, as soon as it goes outside that, that's when you should be trying to rebalance back to what your benchmark is, yep. uh, or what your your target allocation the 5%, is. Five percent. Yeah. Okay. And then we do it quarterly. Some people think it's too often. Sometimes you don't have to do anything. Uh, but having at least reviewing it quarterly and reviewing. working from there, yeah, for every every client we work with, uh, and probably the big one is where if you're worried about how do you rebalance at the moment, you've probably got maybe a narrow portfolio because you're you're early, so maybe you got VAS and a couple of bond ETFs. Mm-hmm. So one option would be to add some more granularity or some more diversification to your portfolio, whether that's like smaller companies or infrastructure or adding different asset classes that fall into your growth and defensive and using that as a way to re- – you're, you're still rebalancing your asset allocation, but you're not doing into the same yeah. investments that you already hold. Yeah, and that's the opportunity to do it, right? Like right now, we're moving out of a bit of gold, about a bit of big cash, probably out of some uh, high-grade, uh, high-yield bonds and into more long-duration bonds or long-term bonds and maybe back into stocks as well. So this is a good opportunity to do that. Good question. I think, to be honest, Drew, that's my kind of winner this week, Dunning-Kruger, because it's a play on a bit of a behavioral bias. Scott, nothing to do with me, says, what's happened to Seoul? Investment performance? Management? Market? Question mark? And I've been checking this. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Drew's just got not my bag, baby, in the uh, in the comments here. I thought that was you. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but anyway, I was trying to- Because the results have just come out from Solpats, and I'll give you the, the headline, Drew. So, we've got a half-year dividend up 24%. The regular profit, which is like adjusted for a few things, up 38% to $475 million. Net asset value up 16%. Net asset value pre-tax- up 5%, which is probably more indicative. Um, net cash flow from investments up 35%. Total shareholder return, share price plus dividend, of 14%. So, beating the all lords by 4.3%. So, so I don't, up. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said not my bag, baby. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I don't really want to comment on it. But I, I don't know. I'm actually catching up with um, Todd Barlow next week. So, maybe I'll put it to him. Um, Todd Barlow being the- uh, the CEO, the chief. Uh, so, um, I'll ask him. But I don't think anything is up, as far as I'm aware, uh, unless you want to write into us, Scott, nothing to do with me. Uh, but everything seems to be going in the right direction. And one thing that I will call out, and this is from Jazz Harrison's reporting on RAS Media, the one thing that I will report back to you is that the company finished with a cash balance of $597 million dollars. Now, if I was looking at Sol Pats's track record, I would say that's a wonderful position to be in because they are cashed up at a time when prices are low and they're getting heaps of income from dividends while also having the ability and the track record to go and deploy capital. Buy some stuff. So that's I, good. I'm, yeah, the only, the only catch is how much do you spend on shares? And uh, I haven't done any sort of da- numbers based on the latest data. All right, Drew, I reckon we've got time for a couple more here. Uh, stumbling baby steps says, hi, I'm just beginning my investment journey. I'll be at late in my working life. That's all right. They've gone to say uh, about a few super funds that they have investments in. I've been listening to your podcast now for a few weeks and heard you talk about core and satellite portfolios. My question is, do you have any starting ratio of how much to invest in each? Um, and then they go on and talk about like, should you have core stocks or remaining percentage in the satellite, you know, 
Thanks. Unsteady baby steps. It depends. Just give us two names. Unsteady baby steps and stumbling baby steps. <laughs> I'm trying to go for a winner there just in case one of them didn't work. <laughs> it depends. Uh, I mean, it has to depend. And then what's your priority for this? So, the the key with the core is it's low cost. So, if you know, what are you prioritizing keeping cost low or uh, are you prioritizing kind of managing volatility and smoothing the journey as we talked about removing emotions? So, the the issue with having 100% in a core is that you're only ever buying the index mm. to, to if you're doing an index call that is and most people do an index call and if you're only ever buying the index you're going to get the average which means if it's down 30 it's down 30 if it's up 20 it's up 20 and you're always going to get which means it's going to be volatile um, we tend to I think our starting point is somewhere like 65 35 or thereabouts or Kev's starting point most of the time you get a few minutes so. rip, I tell you what, he's going to be happy about this and part of that's balancing volatility so introducing yeah. active management and other sectors to reduce the volatility from the core but also keeping costs incredibly low uh, so how do you balance the two if you if you really want to keep costs low you have to stay in passive yeah. if you're willing to pay one two percent uh, or over one percent average in fees then you can have a much bigger satellite yeah. but we'd, we'd usually tilt more into core than satellite yeah. at the moment yeah um course can be active and too. for most accumulators those of you that aren't in retirement mode uh, my general gist would be start with your core as drew was saying make that your priority when you're starting out i know you're going to go and want want to buy some stocks and stuff like that go and do that if you want to but keep that quarantined in a separate brokerage account or something like that but in your core portfolio keep it low cost keep it diversified keep it simple keep adding to it with through automation and then you can start add to satellites on once you get a bit more confident. You don't have to, but you can. Um, well, I generally say this is just a thumb suck, finger to the wind type thing. 80% in your core portfolio um, is a good minimum, I would say. You don't have to stick with that. That's not like there's no science behind that. It's just to set expectations around. Yeah, if you want to go scratch that itch of trying to buy that stock, sure, but just keep it out of the main thing that creates most of your wealth over time. Yeah. Uh, there was one quick question I might just nip in the bud here, which comes from here for a long time, not a good time, which makes sense. Listens to the whole hour of the show, doesn't have a great time. Um, <laughs> hey guys, can you explain why the IBV ETF, that's the S&P 500 one, had a stock split and went from nearly $600 a share down to 40 bucks? And what does this mean for people who hold it or want to buy it? All it means is very simple. For Every one share that you held before at $600, you now have 15 at $40. It was a one for 15 stock split. It's very normal. It's the same pizza, just cut up into more pizza pieces. That is it. Uh, some stock price charts will adjust for this, but some of them won't adjust for this. So meaning that if you look at some stock price charts, it looks like it just falls off a cliff and then kind of resumes regular trading. That just means that the database hasn't adjusted for it. People didn't lose like 90% of their money. It's just an adjustment. Uh, Drew, maybe we've got time for one more question here. So maybe we'll go with uh, super insurance confused because I think this will add the most value to people's lives. Uh, having recently listened to the Everything Superannuation podcast, there you go, someone listened. Who's Everything Super? Oh, ours. That's ours. <laughs> <laughs> it's the episode. I thought someone was copying us. <laughs> <laughs> I started considering my insurances and considered whether I should make any changes. Who would you recommend I reach out to for some unbiased advice and the best way forward for me and my family? Earlier in my life, my parents recommended I set up TBD life and income protection prior to me amalgamating all of my super balances from my previous employers. As a result, I currently have my super set up uh, excluding insurance. Interesting. 
The millions of members with pooled, in, pooled resources makes a lot of sense for a good cover outcome with low fees. However, if I reach out to the insurance broker, I imagine they will list a bunch of other benefits in holding insurance outside of super, but of course they are just talking their own book and have an interest in maintaining their fees. I'll just quickly insert something. Just in case you haven't heard that episode, you should because it's really important. But if you haven't, basically you can hold three types of insurance inside your super fund. And um, th- you, you typically get a default level of cover unless you adjust it. And there are certain risks and we will. there are plenty of risks which we don't have time to cover, but there are many risks to change in your insurance. Make sure you read the guides, the PDS, all that sort of stuff and speak to an advisor. Uh, but what I also will say, if you have some insurance like income protection outside of super, it can be tax deductible. So it's not necessarily them just talking their own book. There may be other benefits. Drew, over to you. Yes. Uh, I mean, we do a little bit of insurance, but as we, as you know, we mainly do retirement, Yeah. Uh, which means most people cancel their insurance in their 50s or then on once they paid off all their debt. Yep. Um, I think it personally, as we both know, we both hold our own life insurance and, and income protection through yep. an industry fund for yep. the benefit of that kind of low cost and, and scalability of it. Uh, but it does depend on things like your age, your health, the type of job you have yeah. and whether that's actually an option. You know, self-employed, all these other alternatives sometimes require help. Uh, one of the big ones was there are a lot of groups that specialize in insurance. Yeah, just insurance. Yeah, but I think I do the same that you would if you saw a doctor, which is get maybe don't do it with a doctor, but get <laughs> second opinions like if you're buying something or if you're doing something major uh, because there is a broad range in approaches to insurance. So someone might recommend a lot based on their calculations but there's no calculation that everyone uses so it could be approaching some of the more millennial or insurance focused advisors and speaking to a couple of them rather than just one and getting an idea of of what sort of uh cover you need and the best place to put it the the issue well it's not an issue it's just for advisors it is a highly time consuming process to apply Mm. and get insurance a lot of the times and advisors want to be paid for that at the moment there are commissions that are attached to uh, insurance and that's yeah. how most of it's paid so but I know there's a growing trend of advisors charging fixed fees up front to cover the time involved rather than having that commission on the back of the policy mm. yes that's a good point there um, so pre-existing Any- conditions just insert that into the chat um, if you have pre-existing conditions it doesn't matter if you have it your super insurance or you have it outside you got to disclose things like that yep but there are certain limits up to a point where you can have your industry funds, so say like Australian Super, Rest Super, all these big industry funds who get group insurance, they can provide oftentimes a certain limit um, without doing a full medical. Um, but even still, if you do change your insurance, there are oftentimes something called like restricted cover or limited cover, which is where they actually won't cover you for the extra amount for a little bit, for a period of time. Um, and again, it comes back to your work and all that sort of stuff as well. But Drew, there was one more thing that I just wanted to insert here. And we spoke about this, I think, last week. And I don't think I was clear enough with everyone that listens to the show, which is that just because we're on here and we're talking about like Drew mainly talks to retirees and I mainly talk to accumulators, even if you're in your 40s, 50s or 60s, it is incredibly important to make sure you look at your insurance I can't go into too much specifics, but I've had two people in my life recently who are around my age. Shocker, I'm 32. <laughs> um, I made a joke the other night on Self Worth Live. I was like, how does he look so old? <laughs> well, work in finance. <laughs> so, start your own business. 
<laughs> there are many other reasons that you can pull it off. Trust me, I've got a recipe for it. I'm going to stay out of this one. <laughs> so, anyway, um, I I had people who are almost exactly my age yeah. go and have been through massive life-changing medical events in the last few weeks. And I can tell you both of them run their own businesses. Both of them are extremely cash flow, uh, like doing well, yeah. right? Neither of them had more than 100 grand insurance. Yeah. And this, what happens in this situation? Business fails. Yeah. Young people that think they're, I just keep earning money. And they think, oh, I'm not going to get sick. I'm not going to, that's not going to happen to me. If you own a business, if you have a mortgage, if you have kids, go and get insurance right now. Yeah, Drew. So Drew's got a good whacker cover for him because he yeah, runs a business. Need to double that. Yeah, right. But there you go. He even just said he needs to double that. Well, I've got just less than. Uh, so I can tell. I'll tell you how much I've got cover for in my personal name. Can I, can I do that? You okay? Yeah, sure. So I've got cover for one point two seven five million in life and one point two seven five million in TPD. And this was going back a few years. The single reason that I got that. I'm not telling everyone to go and do it. Please do not do that. The single reason that I did it is I calculated the cost of a mortgage kids potential education and business debts those were my three big pillars that i needed to cover if i was to cark it go outside get hit by a, a kid on a scooter out there um that's what i thought about now i managed to update that that was about three or four years ago yeah i also have income protection that's higher than the default rate um because worst case scenario is just not a good scenario Definitely. So, um, it seems like we're just taking our own advice because Drew's looking up his insurance. I'm just thinking of mine, thinking, gee, Willikers, <laughs> need to go and fix this up. But seriously, go and check it out. Drew cancels all up because he deals with a lot of our older, uh, not older, but retiree or people that are um, financially independent. I deal with a lot of people that are still accumulating wealth, whether you're starting out. And this is something you can do inside super or outside of it. Cool. Good way to end it. Really important topic. What's this thing? All right. You read this out. It's Drew's joke for the week. Go for it. Andrew's joke. Oh, Andrew Derrimuth. And over to Andrew Derrimuth on the street. Two antennas got married. The wedding was okay. But the reception was incredible. <laughs> Notice how I started laughing before you got the <laughs> you knew it. Because I read the joke the other day. I thought Drew's going to like this one. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, if you want to get in contact with uh, Drew Meredith, Jamie Nepsis. Roshana, anyone at the Waddle Partners team, uh, financial planners based here in Melbourne, but as Drew Articulator speaks with everyone around Australia, uh, you can head to the link in your show notes there. There's a link that just says get financial planning or Drew's financial planning or something. And if you want to reach out to uh, me, you can find a link there as well. You can also ask a question. Don't forget, if you were the questioner, uh, which was it? Mr. Dunny Kruger with a great question about disproportionately falling and rebalancing a portfolio ETFs right into us. You've won the Value Investor Program. You can also join the Value Investor Program. We're doing a live show in a couple of weeks. Uh, check it out. It's in the show notes. Drew, as always, thanks for joining me. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that RASC could help you in 2024. 
As many of you know, Rask has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies, which considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you with someone who can. The first thing that I want to tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at Rask, which is the launch of our Rask Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch, and every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high-growth strategy. The balanced strategy focuses on passive income, and the high-growth strategy focuses on longer-term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX share research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios, as well as other members-only content. It's called Rascore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 Rask community members have begun the Rask plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. Insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you. Whether you're a single income household or a couple and you just want to protect what would happen if. You want to protect your family if something goes wrong. You want to protect your spouse if you lose your job. You want to protect yourself if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy. Insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is sometimes some insurers will only work with financial advisors, 
but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered, even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Wargent. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascore, you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax. I think you are because I think you have to. So we've partnered with Nevexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All Rask users get 20% off an annual plan with Nevexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nevexa software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nevexa, but they do create some great tools which the Rask community uses each and every day. Number eight, want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator program, helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we are on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the probably, I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor an intermediate investor, you want to know how to value Woolworth shares, or you simply just want to understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the Rask Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000. 
And hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad. If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support RASC and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the RASC network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.